You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Hi, my name is Kristen. I have the privilege of serving in kids ministry and through our women's Bible study. And as Don mentioned, today's scripture passage is from Matthew 5:38 through 48 from the NIV. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Thank you, Kristen. As we wrestle with the conflict happening in the world right now, this text brings us to the conflict within our own hearts. And that is how God works. It is from the inside out. This also becomes a powerful reminder of what baptism represents, that outward sign revealing an inward change. So let's pray together. Let's pray that our hearts would be open as we open the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are able to change a heart. When we look out at what is happening right now, from a human perspective, everything seems so impossible. But when we look at how you change lives, how you transform people, how individuals make a 180 turn we are reminded that with you, all things are possible. And so when it comes to the conflict in our own hearts, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would change us, Lord. For those of us who are carrying hatred and bitterness and resentment in our hearts, heal us, that we might become people of peace in a world that needs to know the peace of Christ. And for those who do not yet know you today or those who are visiting or hearing these truths for the first time, we pray that you would lead them to Jesus Christ, that they might believe and be saved today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, the great British writer G.K. Chesterton said, 
The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. (laughs) And though we often, when we think of enemies, we think of a broader, perhaps even a global scale, Jesus gets personal. Think right now of the people who hate you, the people who oppose you, the people who persecute you at work, at school, online, your neighborhood, maybe even your own family. What do we do with our enemies? Shockingly, Jesus tells us to love them. This command, love your enemies, is perhaps one of the most well-known in their Sermon on the Mount, but it might be one of the least understood and perhaps least practiced. And I think this command to love an enemy actually reveals a tension, especially within American culture. On the one hand, we collectively, as a culture, want to say, well, nothing's wrong. We should affirm everyone, no matter what they believe or what they're doing, and give them as much license as possible to do what they want. And yet, on the other hand, we're angry, we're offended, we're wounded, we're hurt, and there seems to be no reconciliation. But it also captures attention within us, within our own hearts. When each of us hears the words of Jesus, few of us would disagree. Jesus says, love your enemies, and we're like, awesome, love that. Put it on a coffee cup. But when we've been wronged, when we've been opposed, when we've been hated, we feel quite different. We want revenge. Do you ever wonder why those movies like John Wick, for those of you who know, he's like, why these, (laughs) I just surfaced the three of you that saw it in the theater. Um, Why do these movies do so well at the box office. I'm a nerd. I like to know like what things like get a lot of money at the box office. Revenge movies always do well. Why? Well, I think it is because it gives people an opportunity to see revenge played out on the screen. These movies or books, if you read them, they give us emotional permission to imagine revenge. But many of these stories will also acknowledge that revenge is an illusion and will never give you what you think you need. Jesus shows us another way. On the one hand, there's this moral ambiguity. Oh, we don't want to say anything's evil. There's a war here or my neighbor there. Like, it's all, nothing's really true. Nothing's really real. And yet on the other hand, we're like revenge. When we finally admit something is wrong. Jesus shows us another way. And this is another way 
that not only can transform the lives of others, but it is a way that transforms us in the process. So what kind of love is Jesus calling us to? What does it look like? How is it possible? This morning, as we not only study this passage now and prepare to celebrate baptisms in a little while and process what's going on in the the world, I want you to take three things about this kind of love to heart. And they're absolutely important. Number one, this love resists revenge. Make no mistake. Jesus begins once more, as he has done in the Sermon on the Mount, by quoting what has been said in the law in the Old Testament or about the law in his day by many of the religious leaders. He says in verse 38 and 39, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. The phrase is perhaps familiar to many of us. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But what does it mean? Where does it come from? It comes from the law in the Old Testament. But it is important to note why this command was given. This was spoken not as grounds for personal vengeance. It was a principle for communal justice. That is how the phrase eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is meant to be understood. Not as a grounds for personal vengeance, but a principle for communal justice. See, in the ancient world, where we did not have the government structures that we do today, the old feuds, whether it was between individuals or family members or even tribes, would often escalate in their violence when a wrong had been done. And typically, the punishment would go far beyond the wrong itself. And so this statement given to the people of Israel and meant to be lived out as an example to the world was actually given to control excess violence. It was to control excess and to give a ground for dealing with wrongs socially. But though this was a principle for communal justice, individuals had taken it into their own hands, like vigilantes. And in the hands of broken people, it becomes an excuse for revenge, a justification for hatred. Jesus says, no, I show you a new way. And he illustrates this in four mini scenarios in daily life. Verse 39 to 42. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. 
Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let me be clear up front as we examine these illustrations, these daily life scenarios. Jesus is not here speaking at the level of legal rights or communal justice. He's speaking to the issue of personal vengeance. So all of these scenarios, all of these illustrations are personal. They're directed at the individual. The phrase, turn the other cheek, when one is slapped, is not referring to an outright attack of violence. In that culture, the slap on the cheek was an insult. That's what Jesus is speaking to here. After all, if you really want to harm someone, you don't just smack them on the cheek. It was an insult. So just to be clear about a few things, Jesus is not forbidding self-protection. Jesus is not forbidding self-protection. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, there were times where he actually left the crowds when they intended to do him harm. In fact, as we'll see in a few moments, acting in love towards someone who is really trying to attack you would include taking steps to stop their violence, even involving the authorities, which is what Paul the Apostle talks about in the New Testament in Romans chapter 13, where he says governing authorities, their job is actually to restrain evil, that there's an objective, corporate, accountable, though often imperfect system that is meant to restrain evil. What Jesus is forbidding here is revenge. So when an insult is given, turning the other cheek means you're not going to choose to pay them back and you are leaving the door open for reconciliation. You're not escalating it. This is not a call to abandon justice. By the way, notice Jesus calls them evil. We'll get to that in a moment. But rather, this is a call for you and for me to relinquish our need to pay people back. For is that not the natural inclination of your heart when someone offends you, when someone insults you, when someone does you wrong. I'm not always thinking of justice. I'm thinking of vengeance. So many of the songs that maybe I'm just aware of this because I've been studying this passage this week, but so many songs that we listen to, just popular songs, are about revenge. Like, I'm going to pay you back. And you're driving, you're like, yeah. Oh, wait, love your enemy. Right, right. Yeah, Matthew 5K, just got to get in the zone. Got to pull it back. A lot of the counsel we receive from close friends often is along the lines of revenge. 
You might even have some friends who help you to become very imaginative and creative in the ways that you could enact revenge upon someone who has insulted you. And Jesus says, bless them. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Jesus is telling us to go beyond what is expected. And it's surprising because we're so used to people only looking out for their own interests. And Jesus is calling us to a radically different lifestyle. And so he goes on, for the person who wants to sue you for your shirt, give him your coat as well. After all, the cost of going to court would be more than buying a shirt anyway, as the commentators point out. Again, Jesus is not calling us to cheapen our sense of justice. It's the opposite. Jesus is calling us to a greater righteousness than the verdict of a court. Usually our desire is just to make them pay, but Jesus is calling us higher. He says, if one compels you to go one mile, go the extra mile. Which in a world where the Roman soldiers had the right to compel citizens to carry a burden for them, this would be resented by the people of that land. And Jesus is saying, go the extra mile. And lastly, give generously to the one who asks and do not take offense at their request, meaning you're not looking for repayment. Your concern, Jesus is teaching us, is not about saving face or paying the other back or treating them according to what you think they deserve, but willingly choosing blessing over revenge. This is echoed throughout Scripture. In fact, before Paul talks about the right place of governing authorities who restrain evil, that there is a sense of communal justice, right before that, Paul echoes Christ's teaching here when it comes to personal vengeance. And he says this in Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul gives us this instruction and reminds us of what was spoken in the Old Testament, which reminds me of the time my, my brother had a friend who had this, this ring on his finger and it had, as some rings do, writing on it. And my brother noticed it said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. My brother said, oh, what, what's written on your ring? He said, oh, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And my brother continued the sentence, says the Lord. And he's like, what? Oh, no, that, I, no, that's not on my ring. <laughs> See, naturally we're like, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And we forget, says the Lord. But in contrast, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? Well, it means at least several things. As a metaphor, it was used to describe an attack coming against a city wall or a gate where the archers and the military would come and heaping coals would be dumped over the wall to stop the attack. So in one sense, there's a rightness to stopping an attack. But as a metaphor, it also describes shame. As in when you bless another person, even if you have to restrain them from continuing in the evil, but still providing the water and food that they need, you are, in a sense, increasing the shame, their awareness that, hey, you're doing this evil to me. I'm not going to respond in kind. I may put up a boundary to stop you from doing that, but I'm still going to bless you. And it is meant to actually increase their awareness that what they're doing is wrong. After all, it is unloving to make it easy for people to sin against you. Jesus is not saying be a doormat. He's saying be an ambassador for righteousness. There are structures that are to be appealed to in order to restrain evil. Jesus is not forbidding that. It's about personal revenge. Jesus is saying don't do it. He's teaching us a new kind of love, and this love resists revenge. Are we acknowledging, friends, that oftentimes the attitude of our own heart when someone at work, maybe our family, maybe our city, our nation, or beyond, is opposing us and hating us, that we nurse this desire for revenge within ourselves. Is that you this morning? Have you been secretly nursing that desire to pay someone back, imagining scenarios where you will? Christ calls you to confess that today, recognizing that the way he is teaching you resists revenge. And the reason this is most important for all of us is because there's a deeper reason. And that's the second point. This love overcomes hate. Jesus is getting to the heart. This love overcomes hate. See, love for your neighbor is essentially a summary of all Old Testament ethics but Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount deepens the application in a startling way. In verse 43 to 45, he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. Now, when Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, the first half, he's quoting from the Old Testament, from the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Love your neighbor. But the second half, the hate your enemy, is most likely a reference 
to what was being taught in his day, how the teaching of the law was being applied. Hate your enemies. Now, we have many modern examples of this, of course. You stick to your own and hate those people. We see it all over, online, and perhaps even within our own hearts. And Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemy. Who who are my enemies? And how do I love them? Your enemies are those in your life, past, present, and future, who hate you, who oppose you, who persecute you, who insult you, and curse you. So let's do an exercise. I want all of you to think of those people right now who insult you, curse you, hate you, oppose you. Are they there? Jesus says, love them. And you're like, how in the world do I do that? Well, it's an important question, particularly because the word love has become so watered down in our culture that it requires definition. And there's two aspects to how the word love is used in our culture today that I want to mention and clarify because they are not what Jesus is talking about here. To love in our day often means two things. Natural affection and total affirmation. That's how love is often used in our culture. We say, oh, I love them. We usually assume that someone's heart just naturally welled up, like I just naturally, instinctively, intuitively just love them. And love has also come to mean total affirmation, that if you really love someone, you must affirm who they are, what they believe, what they're doing, how they're behaving, regardless of whether you like it or not. That's how love is often used today, especially regarding ethics and all that and the otherwise, but love is used as a term to describe total affirmation. Jesus, when he says, love your neighbor, he is neither talking about natural affection nor total affirmation. Here's why that's important. When Jesus says for you and for me and for people across the globe, if you want to follow him, love your enemy, he is not saying, do you naturally have affinity for that enemy? Or, you know what? If you hate your enemy, just just wait a while. Just kind of like meditate and just chill. And then maybe over the course of time, a natural affection will arise within your heart. And when that happens... Love them. It's not what Jesus says. That's not what he's talking about here. For the feeling may never come. In fact, your feelings most likely will be the opposite. What Jesus is talking about here is a choice, a decisive act of the will based on the conviction of God who changes your heart. It's a choice. 
Jesus is not talking about natural affection. Nor is Jesus talking about total affirmation. See, our culture believes two lies. That love means you affirm everything about someone. And the second lie is if you disagree with someone, you hate them. Have you heard this? It's assumed in our culture. If you love me, you will affirm me. And if you disagree with me, you hate me. The Bible never talks about love like that. To love someone does not, according to the Bible, mean that you agree with them or that you affirm what they are doing. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It is possible to love someone that you totally disagree with them and that you disapprove of what they are doing. For anyone in the room who has children, you know this to be true on a daily basis. For your child, as they grow up, will often do many things that you completely and utterly disagree with and disapprove of, and yet you love them. When Christians are called to love the world, that doesn't mean like, hey, everyone, you guys are good. Just good. Just, you know, do your thing. Who am I to say anything? Like this moral ambiguity that exists in our culture right now when, when something evil happens, as we're seeing right now, like people are like, no, I don't know. It's just a different perspective. There's no moral ambiguity in the Bible. And to love someone does not mean that you must affirm it. See, oftentimes we struggle with this command to, to love an enemy or to love someone who's going against God because we have bought into the lie that love means you must affirm them. But you could say, I totally disagree with you. I completely disapprove of what you are doing. And yet here is a cup of water. Here is food for you to eat. I am going to bless you. Jesus loves the whole world. Amen? Jesus died for the whole world. And Jesus disagreed with every one of us. Jesus disagreed with the whole world. And yet he laid down his life for the world. He calls everyone to repent. And yet he lays down his life for us so that we could be saved. It is important to note that Jesus acknowledges that the enemy is doing something evil. That's why the word evil is used in this passage. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus has just described, given us four examples in those many scenarios in the previous verses. But here he gives us a fifth. Pray for those who persecute you. And I would say that this is to be the first action of the will. When that enemy opposes you, when they come to mind, you pray for them. When we pray for enemies and global matters, we pray for them. We pray that their heart would be open to God. We pray that God would open their eyes to see their wrong. We pray that God would restrain evil. We believe in the power of prayer in a world in which people view prayer as meaning nothing. Like, oh, I don't need your thoughts and your prayers. But when you understand what the Bible has to say about prayer, prayer is powerful. It's pleading with the God of the universe to, to act 
according to his good purpose in the world and that prayer actually does change things, including hearts. We pray. We implore God to move as Jesus himself prayed when he was crucified, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. We pray. Our first instinct that God wants to instill in us by the power of the Holy Spirit that will not come naturally is to pray for those who persecute you. We really believe that God is at work as we pray. But God is not only at work on them. As you pray, God is at work on you. That you do not be overcome by evil, but that you overcome evil with good. I will never forget reading some of the first biographies that were handed to me as a new Christian many years ago. And one of them was the story of Corey Ten Boom, who some of you may know who survived the, the Holocaust. And I was amazed hearing what she had gone through and yet how she prayed for her persecutors, how she prayed for the Nazis. So moved by that. That is unnatural. That is supernatural. That's the work that God longs to do in every one of us. And listen, this is a radically different way than any other religion in the world. And it was actually this display of love as Christ taught that actually made the early church stand out in an evil empire. And it's what will make us stand out today. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian. And often he talks about his experience of living in a war-torn part of the world and the horrors that go with it. And yet he writes a lot of these books on forgiveness and reconciliation. It's so powerful. But he talks at length about how this kind of love, this radical love made the early church stand out as like a beacon of light, a city set on a hill in the world. He describes it like this. He says, it is a combination of moral clarity that does not shy away from calling evil by its proper name and a deep compassion toward evildoers that is willing to sacrifice one's own life on their behalf was one of the extraordinary features of early Christianity. And it should be the central characteristic of contemporary Christianity. It's the man or woman who says, this is wrong. This is evil. And I am going to pray for you. And I'm going to bless you. Notice the reasons Jesus doesn't give. He doesn't say, do this because they're not that bad. Do this because you're better than that. Or do this because you're going to get praise from people on Instagram. Or do this because it comes naturally to you. No, friends. There is a much greater power at work. And that's the last point. This love reflects God's love. 
That's where the power is. God does not ask us to do what he wouldn't do. And so Jesus says, verse 45, he causes the sun to rise on who? The evil and the good and sends rain on who? The righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So what do we learn here about God as our example? And how then does it become possible for us? I note two things about the love of God here. It is radically truthful, radically sacrificial. First, it is truthful. And so our love should be also. Jesus names it. He says it's evil. He doesn't say it's problematic or it's a different perspective. He calls it evil. So following Jesus and loving him and living as his ambassador in the world does not mean you bury your head in the sand and pretend that evil does not exist. But it is also radically generous and sacrificial. See, most people naturally love those who benefit them. They love those that they belong to. But Jesus is calling us to go way beyond this. It is not a natural love. It is a supernatural love that reflects the love of God. And it is sacrificial. It is to our enemies, even though they do not deserve it. See, it would be one thing if God was unaware of our wrong and our evil, like he's sending the rain and the sun. He's like, hey, you guys good? Oh, wow, what are you doing? Oh, never mind. I'm turning off the water. Like, you guys are done. Some of you are like, that's why California is in a drought. You know, that's it's a spiritual condition. <laughs> you may not be wrong, but God says, it's on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. What does that mean? Merit is not in the picture. What he gives to humanity is not given on the basis of whether or not they deserve it, but it's a reflection of the generosity of God. It's what theologians call common grace, grace that God gives to people, regardless of whether they deserve it or not. So should you pray a blessing on someone who does not know God? Yes, you should. Praying for an enemy is not an endorsement on how they live in the same way that God providing sun and rain on all of humanity is not an endorsement on how they live. Rather, it is meant to be a signpost, a testimony pointing to his goodness that people would repent and turn from their sin and turn to trust in Jesus. This kind of love absolutely condemns evil, but seeks to rescue those who do it. And when Jesus ends by saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, it's mature or complete that he is talking about here. But it is all impossible on our own. See, what makes the Bible unique among many reasons is not just saying, here's how the world is. The Bible tells us, here's how we got here in the first place. Whenever there's war, the Bible doesn't just say, here's what war is. It's saying, it shows us the condition that brought war in the first place. The conflict in the world arises from a conflict in the heart. We were all enemies of God. 
And yet, Jesus Christ died for his enemies. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. Here's the gospel, friends. As we prepare our hearts to respond in worship and celebrate baptism and process what is going on in the world, we remember the gospel that we were by nature because of sin, enemies of God, opposed to his work in our lives and in the world. And God very well could have been rightly justified in saying, I want nothing to do with those people. You made your bed, you lie in it. We're done here. And yet God, not because of who we are, but because of who he is in his great love, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul the apostle himself was an enemy of Christ. Before he was converted, he opposed the work of God. He persecuted Christians. I just read in my own devotion this morning that account in the book of Acts where Paul is saying, I persecuted the church. I cast my vote for these people to die. But then I was on my travels and the living Jesus Christ appeared to me and I was radically changed and I became a follower of Jesus Christ. And I have no doubt that Paul had his own testimony in his mind when he wrote these words in Romans chapter five. Very rarely, he says, will anyone die for a righteous person? Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? God is calling us to a radically truthful and radically sacrificial love at the same time. And dear friends, that is what we see at the cross. At the cross, it's radically truthful. Sin is so bad that he had to die, but it's radically sacrificial. He was so loving that he was glad to die for us. On the cross, Jesus turned the other cheek. On the cross, Jesus was stripped. On the cross, Jesus went the extra mile. On the cross, Jesus gave. On the cross, Jesus prayed. And because he did so as a substitute in our place and rose again and defeated sin, Satan, demons, and death, we can be born again and made from enemies of God to the children children of God, all by his grace. That is the message of hope that we have. That is the message of hope that we preach. That is the message of hope that has changed us here. Amen. That's all we got. It's Jesus Christ at the cross, both mercy and justice win. Justice is served by Jesus taking our penalty and mercy is shown in that he was willing to take it for us and set us free. This is not the way of weakness, friends. This is the way of unimaginable strength. Jesus did not die as an example for righteous people, but a substitute for sinful people. And so we can only love like God when we know we've been loved by God. So have you received the love of God today? Have you received and believed upon the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you've not yet done so, I give you a, 
a radical opportunity today. Believe in Jesus Christ today for your salvation and respond by being baptized. Scripture tells us, be baptized. Why? It is a symbol, an outward expression of an inward change. If you've not received Jesus yet, today is the day. You are an enemy towards God apart from his grace. But by believing in him, you're given a new heart, forgiveness of sins, and a clean start. And for those of you who've been saved and you're getting ready to be baptized, we celebrate with you today. For those of you who think, well, I know I should get baptized because I haven't done so, but I need to get my act together. No, you don't. Listen, if, you, if there were ever a time where someone needed to get their act together, it's when you were an enemy of God. And yet Jesus died for you while you were still sinning against him. Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm gonna wait until you're like 40% better and then I'll pay the rest. There's none of this, I gotta get my life sorted out. You go to Jesus who sorts you out. Have you received God's love? Receive it today. For those of you who are being baptized, we celebrate with you today. For those of you who've already been baptized, this is a reminder of what Christ has done for us. A reminder of our own salvation. This physical symbol, like a a wedding ring given after the exchange of vows. When someone believes on Jesus, they are baptized, publicly declaring their love for Christ because Jesus publicly declared his love for you on the cross when he died. And we celebrate this today as he changes us from the inside out. So let us do that even now, confessing that though we were enemies of God, through the grace of God, we've been changed into the children of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we celebrate baptisms now, we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate the only hope that this world has, that you sent your son to live, die, and rise for us. So Spirit of God, we're asking that you would move in us and cause us to become alive as we think of how hard it might be to love enemies, those with whom we absolutely disagree, those who are doing evil. God, we remember today that we were doing evil, that we were opposed to you, and yet you laid down your life for us. So God, would you remind us of the joy of our salvation? And for those who believed and are about to be baptized, I pray that you would encourage them today. I pray that your spirit would move so radically in their hearts as they make this public display, remembering that you publicly displayed your love for them. And for those who do not yet know you, God, I pray that you would save today. If there's anyone here who's never believed in Jesus Christ, I pray that right now they would, that they would say, Jesus, save me. I believe you died on a cross for me and rose again. I put my trust in you. I pray that they would believe and as an act of obedience, be baptized today. Spirit of God, move, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.